Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of our MLOps community meetups. I wanted to let you know about a few things before we start off this episode. We have a Slack community that you can join. You just need to go to mlops.community and you'll find the link to that. There we talk about everything and anything MLOps related. And the last thing is that we are going to be opening up office hours. This is a place where anyone can come in and talk about what they're doing around MLOps and get help from the community if anyone needs it. So jump in the Slack, you'll see all the updates about our office hours. All right, here we go with another episode of our MLOps community podcast. For this installment, we're joined by Shuby Jane, a machine learning engineer at SurveyMonkey. And as you'll hear in the show, he was an integral part of the team that helped build out the machine learning platform at SurveyMonkey. And if you like the way that he breaks things down and explains all of these concepts, I invite you to check out some of the content that he has on YouTube, and I'll leave some links to his videos in the show notes. Just another thing before we get started, we had some great questions from the audience on this last meetup. And if you'd like to be in the live recording so that you can ask questions and hear it firsthand, I'll leave a link to where you can register for that in the show notes. We'd love to have you. The last thing is that if you want to be a guest, you feel like you got something to say, or you know someone that would be a great guest, please reach out to us and we'll make something happen. All right, without further ado, here is Shuby Jane. Thank you for joining us today. We've got a very special guest on. This is our fourth time, our fourth go around, and um, I think it just keeps getting better. We were joined by Shuby Jane, and I want to give you a big thanks for coming and talking with us. We originally chatted, I think it was at the end of last year, and we talked about what you've been doing at SurveyMonkey with the ML platform there and how how you set things up and so when we started this MLOps community I thought it would be great to chat with you again and get your opinion on just MLOps and ML platforms in general um, because I knew you would have good information to share and, and knowledge to pass on to the community. So um, let's go ahead and jump right into it. We kind of or I've been usually starting from the beginning and asking people our guests how they got into technology where uh, that came from so if you could just tell us Shubi a few things about how you started in into tech and and where it's gone from there that sounds great thanks so much Demetrius for having me on here today and uh, yeah that's a great question to start us off so I uh, grew up in the Bay Area, so super fortunate to be surrounded by tech. Um, my family, like my parents, a bunch of my cousins, a bunch of my friends, kind of 
grew up in this in this area as well, where we got, we started working in tech very early on. And you know, you're really surrounded by it in the Bay Area. You see it everywhere. You drive by, down some highways. You take any you um, you you you're talking with folks, and tech is everywhere. And so, how I really got started on this journey for myself is in back in school. I started attending some hackathons. So, you know, it was a really great space for me to learn new technologies, learn what this building culture is like, what things you can really build um, using software. And from there, I didn't, I, I never really stopped. I went and studied computer science in college, did my undergrad and my bachelor's uh, at Caltech. Then from there, I ended up joining a very small startup working as an analytics engineer where I did a lot of uh, what you would call classical data engineering stuff. But given that it was a startup and you know we were just 20 people, I ended up doing quite a bit of machine learning and machine learning infrastructure as well. Um, from there, I, I, I'm at my current role where I work at SurveyMonkey as a machine learning engineer. But along the way, I've done a bunch of passion projects and side projects, some consulting work where I've had the opportunity to help build out various aspects of ML platforms or help build for a variety of customers and clients, uh, both within the financial space as well as in the tech space. So kind of going and looking at various organizations that are at different stages within their journey of tech, as well as data science and machine learning, I think has been really eye-opening and I've had the opportunity to understand what really I can do to make to support that organization to do well for whatever they're really looking to do um, at that time. And it's it's been exciting and I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes next. You know, this is a rapidly changing field. You learn some new things uh, every single day, every single week. So it's been great. Completely. And along those lines, when you joined SurveyMonkey, had they already had something in place for an ML platform or was that starting from scratch? Where did that come from? That's a great question. So I joined about three months after we decided as a team that, oh yeah, we need to have like a platform in place. So at that time, uh, what we had was essentially microservices for each use case. So whenever um, we wanted to develop a new machine learning use case, some data scientist or ML engineer would start developing a model. And once we were ready with that model, we went and said, okay, let's let's productionize it. Like if we need something real time, let's let's wrap it around in a um, in a microservice, let's dockerize it and let's deploy it. And at SurveyMonkey, given that we're a pretty old software company, we've been around since 99, um, we have pretty standard processes for setting up microservices. That's not very hard. But Around April of 2018 is when we realized, hey, you know, there are some unique requirements for our, our machine learning microservices that other teams don't really have to deal with. And that's where we decided, hey, we need to have a platform for this. We have some special requirements that allow us to look at this in a greater scope and realize there are a lot of different aspects like retraining models, feedback pipelines, um, where data is coming in from, various things like that, that made us sit back and say, oh yeah, we, we, need, we need something else besides the, the process that we have set up right now. And so when you were looking at 
what you needed. How did you go through this build versus buy process? Because I know a lot of companies are looking at, should we get a third party or should we jump on it and start to build it ourselves? Yeah, always the first question you want to ask. I think um, we also asked ourselves the same question too. And I think what really helped us figure out whether we should build or buy is we, we turn to our team. We say like, hey, you know, if we had the ideal platform where every problem that we're facing today and maybe for the foreseeable future is taken care of, what would that look like? What would the requirements for that look like? And so we had, I remember something like a multi-day brainstorming session where we're all just sitting down and writing like, okay, in the ideal world, um, I break this down into, we, 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 we broke it down into three groups or three pillars. And actually realized that these three pillars aligns really closely what, what, with what Phil had talked about last week uh, on this uh, meetup as well, which is we talked about the data side. Then we talked about the services and the serving side. And then last, we talked about the management side. And although those three p pillars are not the exact same words that say Phil had chosen, I think his were data, software, and governance. Um, I think they match up pretty closely though. And for each of those, we ended up defining, okay, what are our requirements? You know, for data, we need some way for our data scientists to easily find data within our organization. We need some way for us to reduce training serving skew. We need real-time live updates for our machine learning features. Then on the serving side, we needed ways to have feedback pipelines be built out either real-time or, you know, in a slower batch moving way. We needed to record every single prediction that took place or inference across all of our models, as well as be able to handle that within our A-B testing and, and experimental platform. Um, and then on the management side, being able to manage all versions of new models that are coming out, all model projects, and then all sorts of data that's coming through this. And so as we started writing everything down, we said, okay, you know, there is not one platform that can do all of this for us. And then it becomes a question we matching things well given the way that development moves in this kind of space how it's so rapid you know we might choose that we're going to go with this platform today for the data side but then tomorrow we might see it's not compatible with our upgrades on the serving side or on the management side and so that's where we sat back and said okay i think you know it makes sense to build here and we had the expertise in-house uh, which was really great for us to convert some of our general software engineers into machine learning engineers and data scientists that could help us build this out from within. And, you know, we did some hiring, of course, but I think uh, largely we did have great experience within the organization. And, and I'm wondering, how big was the team that embarked on this journey? That's a great question. I think so we have, we, we had like four or five data scientists and five to six machine learning engineers. And just to be really specific, the difference between these two groups of people are data scientists and our team are primarily responsible for developing machine learning models, whereas machine learning engineers are primarily responsible for developing machine learning services. So all the deployment side of things. Um, sometimes there'll be some overlap because people have some expertise as well. And just because as projects grow and expand, there could be something there. But 
uh, largely speaking, that's the breakdown. And actually, um, since then, we haven't grown too much. I want to say we've probably added one more, one or two more data scientists or one or two more machine learning engineers, but our output capacity has definitely grown to the point where, you know, we had a handful of ML use cases back in 2018, and that's exploded to the point where we're, you know, nearing the 30s and 40s, um, where wow. it would take us on the order of, say, six to eight months to have one use case from inception or like ideation to out there in production. But now it's on the order of like, say, a month where we can get something out there and get the ball rolling, which is really great. Yeah. So what you what the work you put in paid off, sounds like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's definitely room for improvement. You know, it's an iterative process. Um, but we're really happy to see how we've been able to really accelerate our velocity when it comes to all these kinds of projects. Completely. So last question before we jump into the actual um, frameworks and whatever, all of the infrastructure and how you're doing it. Mm -hmm. As far as upkeep goes, yeah. how, how does that play out? Um, and how is it the machine learning engineers that are doing that? And how much of your time or the machine learning engineer's time is spent on just making sure everything runs properly? So, yeah, I, I think that's definitely really important to know, especially for like teams that may not have like dedicated platform oriented teams, or they don't want to be want to have folks that are dedicated necessarily to like manage the platform. Um, I want to say that in terms of upkeep, there's not a lot because we want our platform to work for us. You know, it's, it's really, um, the whole game is automate, automate, automate. Um, I think though that there is some time that's dedicated to adding new features or new capabilities to the platform. And that's really an iterative process. And you know, each, we, we like to break apart our development cycles into quarters and then sprints. So whatever our quarterly goals are, like, like okay, we're gonna break this up into two week sprints. But for each quarter, we generally have like a couple of goals, like how are we gonna increase the capabilities of our platform today? Um, does that mean that we're gonna add in a completely new component? Does that mean just a, just a new, some, some new upgrades here or there that are small? And so upkeep time can be relative based off of what our goals are for that quarter and what we're looking to do. If we have um, in general, like fewer machine learning use cases that are new to the organization or that we have made promises to say product managers or other product teams that are a bit, you know, we have fewer of those, then we can maybe dedicate some more time to upgrades uh, in our platform. And really we're always, we're looking less on the maintenance side and more on the improved capability side. Um, so I think on maintenance, you know, I wanna say it hovers between five to 10% of our engineers and data scientists time, which is around the time that we roughly would spend on any service for that matter, just, you know, if anything goes down, all right, yeah, let's take a look what's, what's up with that or um, anything along those lines. But generally we look to automate things. So now let's get into the nitty gritty. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us a, an overview of what you're working with and how it works? Definitely. Um, I can definitely walk through a bit of an overview here. So I, I like to break this apart into, you know, those three areas, you know, there's that, the data side, that services side, and then the management side. And on our data side, what we've developed here, so just to give you a bit of background, like back in 2018, 
what we would be doing is we had a data warehouse that was managed by our data engineering team. You know, they would be in charge of developing the ETL that would do like a prod copy of all of our databases into um, our data warehouse. And something that's unique about SurveyMonkey is that we're a hybrid platform. So some of our stuff is on-premise and some of our stuff is in the cloud. And we're actually in the midst of a transition of moving everything to the cloud and putting that on AWS for us. However, given, you know, we're a pretty old company, we, we went with on-premise, you know, many years ago and we, we stuck by that for quite some time. And so all of our data that was used for machine learning model training and development would sit in our data warehouses and our data scientists would call through these hundreds of tables, be really familiar with wh which data sits where, what kind of quality checks they have to run, what kind of validation in order for them to get the raw training set. And that would take really long time, you know, sometimes in the order of months. And then on the serving side, our data would be looking like, okay, we know what tables this came from in training, but sometimes we have already set up some services that service this table, the data from these tables already. So really we should be using these service, these microservices because our engineering teams have worked hard for us to deliver that sort of data in a nice clean format at certain latency SLAs and all those kinds of things. So we would go through a strenuous process of mapping, okay, you got so-and-so feature from this data warehouse table. So really this maps to this service um, and it's this feature, but really got altered here somewhere. So we need to do some engineering on top of it. And then we have some really lengthy data validation process to make sure, okay, yeah, that's the same feature. We're not, we're not having some training serving skew that takes place. And to do that for every single model, for every single feature was a pain. And we did it wrong so many times before we got it right. So we knew this wasn't the right way to go. And our solution to this was developing a machine learning feature store where uh, we wanted to have essentially a one-stop shop for all machine learning data. And we realized that we were essentially serving two use cases here. One is this kind of bulk training use case where we wanted data to be made available for all of our users that use the SurveyMonkey platform, uh, but still in an easy enough way that maps to the use case of our machine learning projects. So I gave a talk about actually our machine learning feature store at the O'Reilly Strata data conference uh, last month. And I can show like a quick slide maybe so that it makes a bit more sense of yeah, great. what, what, what this kind of looks like. And um, that's something that I remember when we talked last, you were telling me, yeah, we're almost done with the feature store. Cool. So the way that we thought we, t we thought about this ML feature store was actually, I'll show a different slide first. Um, we, we, we took a good hard look at our, our data patterns that existed within our organization. And we found a relationship that, you know, we had several one-to-many or one-to-one -one relationships that existed between our data uh, and the entities between them. And then we, we also realized that our data scientists wanted point-in-time window views into our data as well. So let me break down what that means. So if, if I'm say like, 
Airbnb. I might be developing machine learning models that are centered around um, our guests or our hosts. Entities have all their relevant feature data about them, but then they might have some more in-depth data about, say, a, a guest can have many stays, a host can have many homes, and these one-to-many relationships are then aggregated in view with respect to a certain entity. And so at the end of the day, what data scientists really want is a super flat table that contains all the information about that entity and all aggregated other information about their sub-entities or higher level entities. And at the end of the day, they also want this information with respect to a certain time. So how did, you know, that data look like for a certain user on January 1st, 2016. I should be able to know that so that I can develop, say, like a conversion model or a churn model um, about this. And so we thought, okay, we really need to have a feature store that serves this use case for our training purposes. And ultimately, the structure that we were able to come up with that was super simple for our data scientists to use and work with and easy for us to develop enough was creating a flat table for each entity where we have each entity ID broken down by each day. So each day's data and then all the features specific to that entity. I know this is like a really wide flat table. You know, it has hundreds of features. And this made it super easy for our data scientists to get, get up and running with any use case that they needed to work on. And so this machine learning feature store sits within um, we, we use AWS for all, for all of this. So we, we leverage EMR to do a lot of our data processing. We leverage AWS Athena as our final tables for entity tables for our data scientists to send requests to. And it's backed by S3. So every, all the data is actually just sitting in S3 um, for us. And um, it's, it's really exciting to, to see that. Um, work in, in, in real life. And then from there, um, we, we had, so that's sort of really our batch use case, but then I talked about like our serving issues, right? So at the same time, we have a streaming architecture that reads off of our application logs from all of our services and creates a one-to-one -one mapping between the features that are in our feature store here and what spills off of our application logs. In real time, these values are then updated in a similar exact same structure feature store that can be read in, um, you know, at a single, at a single layer, at a single line. So if I want to know what is the data for a specific entity on a specific date, um, I hit my real-time feature store for that. And my services um, hit that real-time feature store and the latency on that is, you know, just a few milliseconds. And so really um, I'm able to get single line reads super fast for my real-time feature store, but I'm able to do my bulk reads against my, my, my bulk feature store as a data scientist whenever I want, again, at a pretty fast speed. So I, I know that was a lot of information. Um, so I can maybe take a quick pause for you to ask some questions there. Um, that was great. And yeah. I think this may be a, a good moment for us to open it up to everyone else that's in the in the chat right now if anyone has a question that they want to ask Shubi, feel free to unmute yourself 
and fire away. Uh, I have a question. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, okay, here you are. Uh, Oh, hi. Yeah, uh, this is Alessandro Moji from California as well. Uh, I have a question. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, in the uh, build versus buy choice, uh, mm -hmm. you end up with the determination was better to build. Uh, that, I imagine, was done uh, some time ago. Uh, I wonder if today you would uh, uh, have different considerations because there have been so much uh, uh, non new services uh, that are offered by these uh, third party like AWS, Google, and so on? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Alessandro. Um, I think that there might have been some aspects of our platform that we might uh, have decided to just buy. I agree with you, um, but probably smaller aspects, not like a huge data aspect or a huge serving aspect right out of the box. And the reason for that is. Um, even now, you know, two years later, I, um, we have the, the, the ability to look back and say, oh, you know, should we have done anything different? And each time we do our retrospectives and ask ourselves this question, what we end up realizing is um, it doesn't end up being, it, two things, it doesn't end up being super compatible with the rest of our, our, the, our architecture that we've developed. Um, it ends up being like you buy, you need to buy into the whole thing and then you're limited by the capabilities of what you buy into. Um, at least in the ML space, um, since this is moving so quickly, what ends up being released as a buy option um, takes some time. And then the second thing is more of a SurveyMonkey limitation is whenever we're working with anything, we often work with our infrastructure teams to make sure, okay, are we good from a security perspective? Are we good from any support or expertise perspective? Do we need to learn anything substantially new uh, from an infrastructure team, if anything were to go down, because if anything were to go down, we're the first line of defense. Given we're a consumer platform, we have hundreds of thousands of people using our platform every day. It's very important for us that things don't go down. You know, uptime really matters. But the second line of defense is our infrastructure team. You know, they get paged next. And if they don't have expertise or they aren't able to learn the expertise, uh, learn learn the tools effectively to be able to support us, that doesn't help us either because we don't have good backup in those scenarios. And so really the first thing is realizing that we would be locked into certain things. And then the second thing is a bit more practical of we, we didn't have the ability to have a good support from like a DevOps perspective in terms of like a, uh, if things were to go down or in terms of just uptime and such. Thank you. I'm seeing a few questions in the chat. One from DC uh, asking, did did you handle versioning bit temporarily? And if so, how did you express consistency requirements for end users? Uh, yeah, great question, DC. I, so in terms of versioning, um, so our ML feature store, essentially we, we version by day and we realize that's not necessarily the most granular versioning that we, that is possible. Technically speaking, we can do it by every single change that's taken place in a, a, across for each user, you know, going back in time. But we really looked at what was really needed by our use cases and a day versioning, like versioning for every single day was more than good enough for our use cases and teams. We didn't have any issues with anything like that. So we're like, okay, you know, 
we know something greater is possible, but what do we really need? We can get away with um, day-based versioning. And so we did. And then in terms of when we need to version our, our training data for our machine learning models. So our machine learning models, um, they actually would have their own, um, they would read from our feature store to develop their training sets. And then each training set would be versioned based off of whatever data science would be versioned by timestamp based off of what the data scientist wants to use. So uh, models are rarely developed by saying like, oh, these are the features in the feature store and this is the date that I want things for and that's it. We actually do have a separate process of like, okay, yeah, this was the exact data that was used to train version three of this model. And it's sitting here in S3, it's you know time locked. If we need to go retrain version three of the model because of some corruption in the model artifacts, we can actually go do that. And we're pretty happy with how that works. And so that allows us to have that consistency um, uh, with our model artifacts and model versions themselves. Let me know, DC, if, if that doesn't answer your question fully. Yeah, I think that uh, that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and then we just have one more question in the chat. I'll, I'll read it out loud for everyone that's just listening in. Um, does the feature store also store updated results of other ML models or just plain features from the DWH? Great question. So when we first started, it was just plain features because that was you know our phase one. We just wanted to get things, get the ball rolling. Uh, now it does have updated results of other ML models. Um, and that's really useful because as we know, the inputs of some models are the outputs of other models. And so that all of our use cases really function. And the way this really works is um, we have, and this gets into more of the feedback pipeline side of things, but we have feedback pipelines that are set up to um, output results of, of models into other spaces within our data warehouse or you know, spit out things into our log stream that we can then put directly into our data warehouse and then it gets read into our ML feature store. Um, so different ways of making that happen. And the reason for both of these things, things is sometimes we need real-time feedback and sometimes we're okay with slower moving feedback where the actual true results or true values of inferences of ML models we end up getting that those true values same days later. Like, does a user convert? Well, we might end up finding that answer, say, 30 days later. But is a user a spam user? Oh, we can actually find that out, like, super fast. Um, so based off of when we can find out the true values of things, that's when the values are updated and made available within our ML feature store. Cool. Very cool. And since you're giving us a few use cases, can you go into a bit more depth on other use cases that you've you've had and sure um should we talk maybe more on just to like get keep the ball rolling let's talk more about use cases and then maybe related to the serving side of things yeah um, perfect yeah so um we developed essentially a machine learning services gateway that acts as our one place for all machine learning services. So essentially, if you wanna call any ML model, you hit our machine learning service gateway, you let us know which model you're looking to hit. And if there's any A-B testing you're looking to do specific to model versions and such, you can um, pass that in. And then 
we pass in the 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 data needed for that model to make uh, make an inference. And what we want to do is make it super easy for our partner services to integrate with us. So when I say pass in the data needed to make an inference, I don't mean all of the raw features that are needed to make a model inference. I might mean, oh, they just give us the user ID or the survey ID. Um, and then from there, we know for each model what features are needed. We go hit our real-time feature store, get those features, and then we have essentially um, model project pods, which are just clusters of um, nodes that are all running the same Docker image or various different versions of Docker images if we're doing proper versioning and A-B testing. And then they, um, they've received all the grab that and we, we, we go hit those nodes, get our inference back, and then return the result to our, to our, whoever called us, called our service. So can um, you just repeat that last part? I think you may have broken up a little bit. Oh, sure thing. So basically we have like a high level gateway. We receive all requests. We go hit our real-time feature store, grab our features. Um, then based off of whatever the API parameter inputs are of which model we're looking to hit and which version we go hit, we have a, we have an Nginx routing layer in between that helps us route based off of these params, which nodes we should be hitting to get to make our inference. We go make our inference and it travels back up our path to then return our results to our users. And so there's essentially a load balancer that sits right at our gateway layer. And then we have a router that sits at uh, right below our gateway to route which nodes we should be hitting um, to make our inference. And we're able to do this now both synchronously and asynchronously because some of our models are super heavy and say they might take on the order of seconds, but our, um, um, our partners want to be able to re re receive a result or at least know that they made the right call, made, made the right request pretty quickly. And so what ends up taking place there is asynchronously will return like, hey, yeah, you know, we got your request, here's your ID, ping us whenever you need to display results of the user, and then we can go ahead and do that. And so we're able to, to overcome our, and, and the reason why we did this is we need, we had some hurdles on the infrastructure side. We couldn't support some models that needed GPUs to run very quickly. Um, and this was mainly due to like say our infrastructure Team, like we, we couldn't get those GPU-enabled um, clusters or, or nodes, and so as a result, we're running some things on CPUs. They're a bit slower, but we're able to still meet our requirements for delivering really quick results to our to our users. Um, and uh, a use case that kind of demonstrates synchronous versus asynchronous is we have a machine learning model feature called SurveyMonkey Genius. So this is a feature that sits when you're sits on the create side of our SurveyMonkey platform. So when you're creating a survey, Hello, you know. Steve. Oh, oh, good. Uh, we when we're creating a survey on our platform, we want to help our users create optimal surveys. So we provide them with an estimated completion rate, estimated completion time, and some recommendations for how they can better their survey 
so that it's more likely to be completed. And so these are backed by a couple of different machine learning models, but we want the results to appear real time as the user is creating their survey so that they can make the changes to their survey almost immediately. And so this is the case of say synchronous uh, inference architecture or synchronous inference call. But then there's a use case of asynchronous inference call um, say when we're doing some heavy analysis upon our surveys and want to return some outputs on say the sentiments of every response for, for the survey that you're looking at. You know, you can get millions of responses on your survey. Getting the sentiment for everything can be take quite a while. So in those cases, we're like, okay, yeah, let's use our asynchronous architecture. It'll take us a couple of minutes for us to get you, you know, the overall distribution of sentiments and such like such uh, things like that. And so let's use our asynchronous architecture and uh, you know, our users are okay with that. And we've been able to um, see, say deliver on that for them as well in, a, in an efficient manner without bogging down our, uh, our infrastructure too much. That's so cool. Thanks for breaking that down. Yeah. Uh, so Karthik in the chat was asking a question that I was actually also gonna ask uh, about the inference architecture. And does it run on Kubernetes? Great question. So it is not for us uh, because we, um, whenever we're looking to add in any new tool or technology to our stack at SurveyMonkey, we like to go through, um, we, 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 have, we have to go through set, set processes. So while we would like to be using Kubernetes down the line, it just hasn't gone through that process of approval by security, approval by infra, making sure we have all the knowledge that we need to support it. Um, essentially, we, we given we're a public company and we have, um, we're, we're a consumer facing platform, we need to make sure we have all our lines of defense there and all our checkboxes ticked. Um, so what we end up using instead is Ansible, which we um, have been using for many years at SurveyMonkey and it works well for our inference architecture. That's great. And Ryan's got a great chat or a great question in the chat, I should say. Uh, he's asking if you can go more into the tech of the async architecture and if it's closely related to the synchronous architecture or is it a totally different solution? Yeah, it, it has layers of similarity, Ryan. And so I would say the aspect of making a request, you know, our gateway, our routing, that all remains the same. I think the additional layer of complexity comes in uh, essentially what we use to inform our clients like, hey, your, your request has a response that's ready or for sometimes to even pass in uh, a request to us is we have, we use a message bus. Um, that's our SurveyLinky wide message bus. We created a topic for ourselves and that allows us to do um, passing around of, of requests and responses in an asynchronous manner um, effectively. And that's essentially our main differentiator, I would say, between our async and synchronous architecture. Um, and there are some things also getting more into the nitty gritty about like priority of requests and prioritization queues and different things like that. Um, yeah, but that's super specific. And uh, e e for, for each use case, um, we end up realizing, oh, we need a new capability. How can we architect our asynchronous architecture to work for this use case? 
getting those solutions already. And uh, we like to be driven by use cases uh, rather than engineering the whole thing that we can think of and then trying to make it work because otherwise we get bogged down by all these other um, things. So uh, DC had another question in here. And it's, do you run in, do you run any human tests? I.e. how long does it take a human to add a feature, get it flowing uh, through to the endpoint? Yeah, uh, definitely, always. Um, whenever we add in a new capability or whenever we're just like, hey, you know, let's see how things improved. So like at least once a quarter, we'll be looking to say like, okay, you know, we have a new use case, new, new machine learning model that we want to help develop, you know, go through the whole flow by yourself. How does it look? How long did it take you? Let's record it all. We have it all documented. We know how long things took. We know where the pain points exist. Um, and you know that serves as information for what we can do better next time and what improvements we can continue to make to our platform. Or um, it acts as say a learning experience for, for people that are onboarding onto our platform as well. And so both things. And these human tests, we always have to run to make sure that our platform is working uh, to serve our data scientists and ML engineers well. And you know we're really expanding to other teams now, helping to democratize machine learning within the greater SurveyMonkey engineering org. I think that could be a nice segue into talking about how you're doing monitoring with the machine learning models. And I know that there's a few things to keep in mind when you're monitoring machine learning models. You have to just make sure that everything's working properly, the system is up, but then you mm -hmm. also wanna make sure that your models are are doing what they said they put and they they were going to do and so are you using a third party just to monitor the system like datadog or instana or whatever it is and then is that all in-house also or are you also um did you build that out and how how did you go about that yeah great question so yeah when we look at monitoring we look at um essentially three things I would say. One is the service monitoring. So just like you're monitoring any service. Uh, second thing is input data monitoring. So monitoring like what kind of data is coming into your machine learning models. Uh, and then monitor, and then third thing is like prediction slash like real re true value monitoring. And so on the service side, we, we, do, we, we do use some, some third party tools to help us out. Um, and this is used across our entire organization. Um, we use New Relic. I was just, sorry, I was thinking to make sure that I'm allowed to say it, and we are, so yeah. <laughs> uh, we, use, we use New Relic, uh, which allows us to um, handle all the monitoring on, the ter on terms of like service uh, side of things. And it's really similar to Datadog. Um, we, I've used Datadog in the past and it, it works quite the same. Um, yeah, and actually. Then, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Dan Sullivan from New Relic is going to be on here in about a month. So I'll let him know. <laughs> yeah, cool. definitely. Yeah, we're, we're big supporters of New Relic and it's worked really well for us. So we're really happy about that. Um, and then on the input data monitoring side of things, what we're essentially doing is we look through our log stream. We, 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 we log all of our input data going into our machine learning models. So that can be logged to uh, our, our, our application logs. So that would be coming in through our log stream then. So, you know, we have some, we have different log streams for different use cases. So Kafka 
or our message bus or different other things like that. Um, and then the second place where we might log things is we, every prediction is also logged into a prediction DB. So it's, it sits in a database. We can query against it real time, allows us to do any sorts of like analysis, check on data drift, various things like that. And so um, because it gets logged to our, our log stream, we can develop some dashboards that allow us to look into data drift. What is our data distribution looking like for all of our features for the specific model? What is our prediction distribution looking like for the specific model for each version of our model that's sitting out there? Uh, how, is our, how are our A-B test results looking like? We can go also map these to true values later on uh, because our machine learning service obtain that endpoint. So if we can get the feedback real time, we do ask our, our clients, hey, hit our, hit our feedback endpoint. Let us know what the real value was. And that allows us to then map, oh yeah, we made this inference. This is the input data. This is the true value. This is how well our model is performing. And that gives us a real-time view into our model performance. In some use cases, we don't have that. And that's where, because we're logging everything to this table, whenever we do get that feedback, we ask our partners to also log the, that feedback into a table of sorts. And so we can set up some feedback pipelines that essentially map these inferences to the true values. We can then get some results of how well our, our model is performing. Usually it's like daily or weekly views. And then we just post it into a Slack channel. So whoever this model pertains to, say our product managers, our clients, us, the ones that worked on the models themselves, um, are aware of, oh yeah, you know, this past week we saw an, we saw some downtick in performance. Probably we're get we we have to go look into this and see like what's going on, or then we can maybe kick off an auto retrain process to just auto retrain our model if our performance dipped below a certain certain threshold. And so we have all these systems working in tandem with each other that allow us to monitor all three aspects uh, effectively. Very cool. And Walid, I see your question. I just wanted to ask one more about that auto retrain because last week when Phil was on, he made the case for this idea of good practice being just to auto retrain, but he wasn't sure it was so worth it in some to most use cases or what he had seen uh, with certain companies, it wasn't needed. Do you have auto retraining going on or is that something that is not necessary? How does that work with you guys? So uh, I agree with Phil as well. I think there are some use cases where you do not need it. And I think that's the same thing for us. There are some use cases where we do enable it and some use, ca use cases where we do not. However, um, we, wh whether we enable auto retrain or not is one thing but still being able to auto retrain is I think another thing. Um, all of our models, if we need to retrain our models on fresh data, we can. We can just click a button and it'll go retrain. And the reason for that is because if anything were to get corrupted, if anything were, um, we, we realize like, oh, we lost our model artifact, our whole like repository of our model artifacts went down. We know we can go and do it again. And we're confident in that. And that is just, you know, our backup processes. We want to make sure everything is good there. Um, and I think often we, we think like, oh yeah, everything's in the cloud, it's safe. But, you know, S3 goes down too. 
AWS goes down too. And we like to just have our backups um, there for those keys, for those, you know, that less than 1% of the time when things go wrong. Um, and um, it also allows us to have a level of accountability of making sure like, oh, we did what we did uh, during training and we can reproduce it. And the reproducibility aspect, make sure that if someone is leaving the company and someone new is joining, it makes sense to them what went on here and they can get the exact same model artifact once again, so it can be used um, in, in, a, in a case. So a couple of different smaller reasons there that force us to have auto retrain available still there, but it's still only enabled for certain use cases where we see data drift occurring or where we see that, oh yeah, our, our performance is varying over time. Um, yeah. Yeah, completely, it makes sense. So Walid had a question here in the chat. He was wondering, uh, he says, I would like to understand more the role of Ansible in your infrastructure. Could you please elaborate on how it's used and how your on-prem infrastructure looks like? Yeah, it's a great question, Walid. So Ansible is used for orchestration for us. It's used for setting up, like we have you know, hundreds of microservices uh, SurveyMonkey, each microservice has specific Docker images they want, specific setup for node flavors, like what kind of instance you're dealing with, different things like that. So Ansible orchestrates the setup for each specific node relative to which service it's gonna fit under. Um, and um, that that's essentially what we use it for. There isn't much, uh, there, there isn't any real and that's a limitation of our on-prem infrastructure. As we move to AWS um, and some of our services are moving over there and some of our use cases are moving over there, um, that's where we can take the benefit of uh, what AWS gives us there. Um, our on-prem infra, um, I can't talk too much more about what I, th than what I've already said, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, I apologize for that, but it's, it's, uh, it, 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 we rely upon Ansible to, to set up our, our nodes and instances that sit in there. Perfect. And Alessandro was asking, do you have use cases that involve personal identifiable information? If you do, how do you handle that? Yeah, great question, Alessandro. We do. Um, a lot of, um, we, we are HIPAA compliant because many um, hospitals or healthcare professionals use SurveyMonkey. We also integrate with a lot of um, enterprises that provide us PII info and so a PII uh, data. And so we need to be able to work with that. And so the way that works is our real-time feature store is set up in a secure manner that only specific services can access it. And it does contain the PII data since sometimes we do use PII data during inference time and that's known to our users. It's an opt-in thing um, where users have to opt into it. Um, however, for training, no PII data is available. Um, we can't make that um, accessible for training ever. So you cannot train on any PII data. It, it can be anonymized in certain use cases, depending upon the use case. And we have an entire governance process set up that uh, I'm not responsible for, but we make sure to abide by it um, at each point to make sure that we, we are working there uh, effectively. Um, and I think um, and I think the the PII 
data that we use in the real-time cases are also like, we do have the ability to be able to go back in and delete it if needed and the various other processes that have been, that have been set up for, um, to abide by like the, the data governance practices that we need to fulfill as a, as a server monkey org. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, JH has a question here about the line between the machine learning engineer and data scientist. He's wondering, creating managing model artifacts using repository for this model versioning retraining. Is this the role of a ML engineer or a data scientist? How do ML engineers and data scientists work together? And when does the ML engineer take over? Um, or are they continuously working together? Because data scientists aren't often keen on software development or versioning. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think each organization works differently. So I can talk specifically from SurveyMonkey is um, a few years ago, it used to be like, oh yeah, data scientists do all the model development. They give us the model artifact and then they're like, okay, you know, here you go, handoff. Um, that did not work very well for us in the long run. And since then we work together in tandem from the very beginning. Um, and that allows our data scientists to pick up on some software development. It allows our ML engineers to understand the model at a very, very low level. Um, so that makes sure that um, we can know from the get-go, like, oh, actually, we you know we don't have this data available in our feature store real time. Like it, it, it only gets populated once a day. So like, are you okay with that? Is that fine? And our data scientists know this, the requirements or the limitations up front or like, oh yeah, you know, we can't support uh, a 15 layer neural net. We can only really support 10 layer ones uh, at the moment. So, you know, whatever you're looking to do, we can't um, do that. And because those conversations are happening earlier on, our data scientists know what the restrictions are. We know what the restrictions are. And from there on, um, we can really make sure that we don't have any um, un like blockers that we didn't foresee kind of appearing. And as a result, to be specific, data scientists still are probably the leads on the model development and ML engineers are more so the leads on the productionizing aspects, but there is definitely some crossover and more and more crossover that, it, that, that happens over time. And I would say that over time, I'd say I've gotten way more adept on the data science side of stuff and our data scientists have become uh, way more adept also on, on the software engineering side. And if um, anything were to happen to our services, I'm sure they'd be able to, you know, be able to chip in and make sure things are running smoothly. Great. All right. So we got two minutes left. I want to ask you one final question, but before I do, what's the best way to connect with you? If anyone wants to continue the conversation, Oh yeah, uh, I, I would say LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Uh, it's the thing I look at uh, most frequently. I do have a Twitter and all, but uh, I don't, I feel like I end up using it all too much. So yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So LinkedIn, uh, we'll put that in the follow-up email. And my last question to part uh, is, can you talk to us just quickly about some obstacles that you faced when you were building the platform? Something that you thought in the beginning was going to be easy and it wasn't, or just something that came out of nowhere and blindsided you? 
Um, I think, I think we knew this was going to be hard, but it was still super hard when we did it, which was just defining the requirements and like making sure we stick to it. Um, at the end of the day, we were trying to create something that we didn't have too many examples to follow. Um, like when we, what we would often do is we would talk to other ML teams at other organizations like, oh, hey, what are you guys doing? Or what are you doing? And that helped us figure out like, oh, what was a manageable task or manageable thing we could take on? Or sometimes they would talk about their own obstacles or nightmares that let us know like, oh, what's possible or not possible or what should we really try to do? Um, but I think I still think of the, at, the, at the end of the day, it was really the scoping, like figuring out like, what, what can we take on? What can we do? Is this possible? Um, what do we really need? Um, and I think we spent a lot of months doing that and having a lot of back and forths uh, on all aspects about that. Um, the, we, we still probably in terms of it, our iterate, iterations probably still have that, but I think that was probably the biggest obstacle. Another one was definitely just expertise. We ended up using a lot of tools that uh, were, we weren't necessarily familiar with initially. So it was a learning process for us. Like we hadn't used PySpark heavily uh, on like say our, our feature store side of things. Um, learning that was, was tough. It's, a, it's definitely a learning curve there. Um, I would say that those are probably our two large obstacles that uh, were, were there. Perfect. Thanks so much, Shubi. And connect with him on LinkedIn. Thank you everybody for joining us. This has been an awesome conversation. You all asked some amazing questions. Um, I'll send up a follow-up email and I look forward to seeing you. We're doing this every week. Uh, so please come join us next week. See y'all later. Have a great night. Stay safe out there. Thanks, you too. Yeah, stay safe.